0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure to talk about my study on chimpanzees. Uh, Today I will talk about teaching. Teaching of chimpanzees is called Education by Master Apprenticeship. Outline of my talk First, I will talk about mother-infant relationship. Then, let me proceed to the tool in the wild. And finally, I will talk about laboratory simulation. What is uniquely human? Mother-infant relationship is very unique. Uh, this is phylogeny of primates. Human is a species of hominid that includes chimpanzees, mother and infant. Bonobos, mother and infant. I will show you Bonobo. I visited Wamba, uh, Congo Zaire to see the Bonobos. And gorillas, again mother and infant. And father... I will show you a gorilla father called silverback. They live on grasses, herbs, and orangutan, again mother and infant. I also visited humans, hunter-gatherers, uh, in Cameroon, the person next to me has a big family, and the rightmost, uh, eldest daughter, has already the baby. This means his grandfather, and his wife is grandmother. Grandmothering is very unique to humans. So in short, human society is unique uh, because of multi-level society of family and community and collaboration in among the members of the community, sharing that makes us human. Let me proceed to the tool you in the wild. My field observation is done in Bosu, Guinea Conakry, since 1986. This is a forest of chimpanzees in Bosu. you can see our field station of Kyoto University. There is a so-so large village and surrounding forest Uh, that is the high mart, the home place of wild chimpanzees of Bosu. I have been focusing on the tool use. Chimpanzees of Bosu use a pair of stones to crack open nuts, that is a unique cultural tradition. This is another female chimpanzee. Pick up a nut, hard shelled nut. Hit, crack it open to get the kernel, edible part. Uh, by the way, she is left-hander, always using uh, left hand for hammering. It takes four or five years to reach to uh, this level or start cracking nuts. So this is three years and a half. The young chimpanzee, she cannot do it. How will she do? She goes to see the nearby adult. Very carefully look at what's going on. Interestingly, no active teaching at all. Nothing. Uh, Young chimpanzee Returned to her home place to try to do nut cracking by herself. This is a way of teaching. This is a way of education in chimpanzees. There is a very few cases in which it looks like a teaching. So this is an grandmother is trying to crack open nuts in front of grandson. By the way, uh, grandmothering is very rare in chimpanzees. I want to show you another example of use in the wild, scooping algae. Uh, this was found in Bosu 25 years ago. Standing at the edge of the small pond, each chimpanzee was holding a stack or stick in one hand. And this is a digital holotype. It's a first video recording 25 years ago. In 1995. Using stick to get RG floating on the pond. You can see the manufacturing process. Pull out a fan and cut into the right length, about 50 centimeter long, and stripping the side leaves to leave the tiny hooks on the stem. That's good for scooping algae. This is what I have witnessed in the wild. Chimpanzee tool use throughout Africa make a long, long list of variety of tools. But according to my level theory of tool use, uh, almost all tool use by wild chimpanzees classified level one tool. Level one means one node connects two different objects, target object and tool. So ant and stick and dipping and argy and uh, stick or argy scooping or termite and uh, st- uh, probing stick, uh, probes to termite fishing. So almost all belong to level one. So nut clocking is a layer case of level two tool. Nut, anvil, hammer is combined by placing and hitting. And level 3 tool is the most complex tool so far in the world, use of which, So this is a hammer and anvil, and the third stone wedge is used for stabilizing and keeps the anvil surface flat. This is the most complex tool use in the world. The question is how to teach uh how to Uh, transmit this knowledge and technique from one generation to the next. And that process is named education by master apprenticeship. That has three features. Mothers and other adults serve as models of the behavior. Second, the apprentice, the offspring, is strongly motivated to copy the behavior, intrinsic motivation. Uh, no food reward. And the third, in return, the mothers and adults are highly tolerant of the apprentice. So around the tool use site. So this is education by master apprenticeship. Human way of education is illuminated through chimpanzees. Three features. Active teaching, barbaric instruction, coaching, molding, guidance, suggestion, tutoring, scaffolding. But there is a subtle way of education too, uniquely human, that is helping, giving a hand, social praise, nodding, smiling, nothing to do except just monitoring, just watching. And finally, collaborative education. Not only mother, father, grandmother, all the members of the community is involved in the education. Let me proceed to the final part, that is simulation in the laboratory. One of my mentors is David Primack. He is a pioneer of teaching plastic sign language to chimpanzees, Sarah. So chimpanzees and bonobos, Kanzi, learned lexigram and spoken language. And gorillas, koko, learned American sign languages. So those ape language studies told us that if you teach they can learn. So in my case, laboratory study is called an project since 1977. And up to that point, classic way of studying apes is cross postaling. Uh, isolate a baby chimpanzee uh, from the mother. And I recognize it's not good because infant isolated from the mother looks like depressive. So when a chimpanzee gave the birth to her son named Ayumu in 2000, I strongly decided not to separate the baby chimpanzee from the mother. So what I called participant observation, I participated in their daily life of mother and infant who are living in a group of chimpanzees. So this is my way of studying chimpanzees. Multiple habitats are interconnected for the simulation of Fission fusion group living chimpanzees in the primate research institute. So, in a face-to-face situation, I did the nesting cup, the cognitive test. Seven cups, small to large. Three to four, four to five. Uh, six to seven, three, four, five, and one. and stacking blocks. So mother stuck blocks and it is uh, spontaneously imitated by the young chimpanzees. So we taught mother chimpanzees, but we did not teach the youngsters. Mother has learned to use the letters Color red go to the letter, color blue goes to the letter, color purple, gray, in the reverse task, now decoding the letter, yellow, what is this letter, green. And it is brown. So, right after the birth, the baby chimpanzee was always with the mother doing this kind of cognitive tests. uh, Solving the matching to sample task to get a coin and put it into the vending machine. And that was learned by the baby chimpanzee. A coin is delivered for uh, each correct answer. Then Ayumu brings the coin into the vending machine. So, the whole process, in this case in the laboratory, that is the solving, mass, ma- matching to sample, and to get the coin, to use the vending machine, to get the food reward, the entire process was imitated, uh, learned, by education master apprenticeship. Okay. Um, the young chimpanzees learn the sequence of numerals just like mother chimpanzees. Then, based on this knowledge, we tested their working memory. We have three young chimpanzees, and they can do the task like this, what we call masking task. So first the stimuli numeral is touched, the others are masked. So I postulated the cognitive trade off hypothesis. Um... The common ancestor may have the, this kind of capability, but we lost it in the course of human evolution. In return, we acquired the language. Uh, please go to YouTube and put Matsuzawa and trade-off. There are uh, more than 15 million access, and you can see the details of the explanation. So beyond teaching, chimpanzee can show us their capability, a unique capability that is somehow different from humans. Thank you very much for my colleagues and staffs in the laboratory work. And thank you very much for the colleagues
1: in my field work. And thank you for your attention.
2: Thank you for that very kind introduction um, this Today I'm going to be talking with you about symbolic play and I'm very grateful to the illustrator Barry Blitt for doing a February cover for The New Yorker called Origin Story and we'll come back to this later in this presentation. Before I get to the substance of the presentation, I want to acknowledge some colleagues and also thanks. So talking with Ann Russin and Dick Byrne via email helped a lot. I relied on reading and rereading Alice and Jolly, and I really am grateful to Rich Wargo with technical support. The presentation is to introduce you to play and remind you what you know about play, but more importantly, how we define symbolic play. Also remind us that sometimes people describe Homo sapiens as the playful Um, species of Homo. And so briefly, I'll talk about how play characterizes and is sort of universally attributed to our species. And then the bulk of the presentation, will be looking at evidence for symbolic play in great apes. If you go to the dictionary, play has lots of definitions, either as a verb or as a noun. But this first definition is one that you frequently encounter. And the thing that you might notice is that it's focusing on activity that is viewed as as not serious or practical. But if you're an evolutionary biologist, a developmental psychologist, I think you recognize that play is essential for cognitive, social, and linguistic development. And the payoff is huge. I, I think that it yields an individual that is far more behaviorally flexible. If we start looking at the functions of play... We can see that lots of folks say, well, play is about practice. Well, yeah, you can learn to be agile. You can figure out what your reproductive repertoire is. You can also maybe get a crack at taking care of an infant. And equally important, you can start exploring the world through objects. Play can also create a context in which you can experience extremes without the kind of pressure of a real threat to you. And maybe it also functions as a kind of psychological or cognitive rheostat in terms of your responsivity. Um, I would also argue that it is going to scaffold so many of the behaviors um, and the behavioral challenges that, that an organism will, will encounter later on in its life. Um, it also allows you to continue to learn. Um, individuals who play a lot Um, have a long juvenile developmental period, and those are also the big-brained animals, bigger-brained for their their given body size. When we're looking for how to recognize play, often we can see this wonderful open-mouth play face, but it doesn't always have to be there, and you can see this play face in either um, a social or solitary context. Often play is about exaggerating, whether it's a body movement or a psychological process, Many times, when we see an organism basically engaging in a kind of cyclical or repetitive pattern and coupling it with one or both of these, um, we can often say, oh, that organism is playing. And then this idea of restraint, when particularly social, um, an individual may be doing what we call self handicapping. Obviously, you could say it's a a play, it's a a rough and tumble play bout, um, and it looks like play biting, but in fact, the skin is not being broken. And you can also calibrate your body size versus your conspecific. Going back to foundational scholars, Wolfgang Curler and and Gregory Bateson, I think it's useful to pay attention to Curler's idea of serious play. And this young man is showing us exactly what he had in mind. Um, These are very deliberate movements. Sometimes you'll see this compressed mouth, sometimes the protruding lower lip, and Bateson, Gregory Bateson, tried to think about play and individuals um, engaging in play as framing reality as separate. Uh, basically, their their game and their play behavior as out of reality or from the sort of um, real time uh, experience. So, what is symbolic play? Well, this young man is showing us precisely that this apple is clearly a telephone. And we look for definitions of symbolic play from developmental psychologists, and we watch children use objects, actions, or ideas. And in many cases, we label it either symbolic play or imaginative or pretend play. And this pretend object play is something that I think will come to our attention when we start looking at the great ape evidence. Now, coming to our own species and I can't spend much time on this, but I want to just remind you, as I said earlier, we're sometimes characterized as the playful species of hominin. A Dutch historian, in fact, wrote a book called Homo Ludens, in which he makes the case that play is critical and or foundational to human culture. More recently, we can look to the human um, relations area files, um, which is now an e-database, where we're fundamentally looking across um, cultures for how anthropologists record various kinds of data. And in in this um, enterprise, games and sports and the like are cultural universals. Lastly, Donald Brown, a member of Carta, wrote a lovely book in 1991 called Cultural Universals, and along with many other um, patterns, um, he points out the ubiquity of play in all cultures in the ethnographic record. So let's get to the evidence for symbolic play, if it is if it is there in great apes, and point to some examples. I'm going to be talking about orangs, gorillas, and pan. The bulk of the data will come from pan. Um, the information is ranging over seven plus decades. And it sometimes is a a single account. In some cases, it's a more um, empirical kind of report. Uh, The subjects that I'll talk about are often apes that are in ape language projects, but I'll also be referring to some apes that um, are wild. And when I do the wild uh, material, it will be restricted to genus pan. So a single slide for Pongo, and in this case, an individual named Chantec, um, who was one of those early pioneers in American Sign Language acquisition, worked with an anthropologist, and just a very, I think, nice but informative anecdote. Um, Chantec would use his sign for cat, American Sign Language. Um, Apparently, he was afraid of them. And he would use it Um, and basically sign cats were nearby, but people knew that cats were not present. And then he would also feign fear. Gorilla, this is the famous Coco and Penny Patterson. Again, long-lasting relationship, decades of work in acquiring American Sign Language. And when you look at how Coco uses the language when she's not interacting with Penny, um, she can sign to herself, she can sign to her dolls. I like this anecdote about alligators because, again, it sort of shows a symbolic play where Coco is afraid of alligators, even though she's never seen one, but she has these little toy alligators and she sneaks up on her human friends. This is all a kind of pretend, right, to frighten them, and, and the reaction of the friend is supposed to be start startled and fearful. Going on to genus pan, and we'll start uh, with a kind of foundational study in American Sign Language, and this is the very famous chimpanzee Washoe and her son Lulis, her adopted son, and this is them later in life. Remember that Washoe and a set of other chimpanzees learned American Sign Language in a number of contexts, but in this case, we're looking for how she either engaged in symbolic play with toys bathing her dolls, or using American Sign Language to talk talk to her dial dolls and or communicate with stuffed animals. Another of her companions, Dar, would place stuffed animals on his side and use the sign for tickle. Now, this is an extended two-slide account of what I'm describing as the mother of all anecdotes, in part because it's really a case history, and it's about Vicki and her mother, her human mother, Kathy Hayes, and Vicki was one of those early pioneers in trying to teach chimpanzees vocal language. It was a failure. Vicki eventually got maybe four words, including the word mama, however it is she produced it. But this extended anecdote really has to do with Vicky's imaginary pull toy. And in sum, basically, Vicky creates an imaginary pull toy. Um, trailing her arm out behind her with a string and uses this um, imaginary pull toy repetitively. Um, Sometimes she modifies the game. So the, the rope that's pulling the toy gets caught on some plumbing pipes, and then she has to do all of these adjustments to get it free. Or she sits on the toilet and plays with her imaginary toy, which is at the end of the rope, the thing that certainly gets people's attention is what follows is where Vicky continues this behavior, um, gets her toy caught up again, but then gets frustrated, is sitting on the floor, um, quote, as if she's holding a taut cord, and then looks up to her mother and uses her vocal behavior and basically makes a request, and her mother untangles, using a pantomime, untangles the rope and gives it back to Vicky. And Vicky carries off with her toy. Um, shortly thereafter, Kathy Hayes decides she'll join in and invent her own pull toy with a very interesting consequence. Vicki basically fixates at where the toy and the rope should be on the floor um, and then vocalizes in fear, jumps into her mother's arms and never plays this game again. Moving on to apes in um the field and in this case um as I said chimpanzees. This is a, a relatively recent study from the Kanyawara community in Uganda um where we're seeing juvenile chimpanzees, males and females carrying sticks, they're also carrying rocks it turns out, but there is a female bias in um who's carrying the these objects. And there is a video clip on the next slide. We will not be able to see it today, but in case you want to chase it down, because it's a pretty compelling interview with Richard Wrangham. But the the chimpanzees are carrying rocks or sticks um, for periods of time, minutes, hours. They carry them up into trees. They put them in day nests. They make nests for the objects. And the interpretation is that this is either doll play or a form of play mothering. The behavior stops after females give birth. And so far this is the only community where this pattern of behavior has been observed. Another um, field chimpanzee site um, in far west Africa, in the hottest, driest, most open habitat, involves chimpanzees exploiting. Um, shallow pools when the temperature is extremely high and as is the humidity. But in addition to basically having pool parties, they often use these pools of water to explore themselves and use sort of this reflective pool, I think, to, to kind of investigate themselves. These are climatological data just to show indeed how hot it is. The final field study I want to talk about um, is about bonobos, and this is the site of Wamba. It's directed by Takeshi Furuichi from the University of Kyoto. Um, these are habituated um, bonobos, and the researcher who's been working there, or who did work there for almost three years, um, is Isabel Benke. She's here at a, at a bonobo sanctuary, and her focus of attention was looking at at the role of play in bonobo society, but here I want to focus on how bonobos use water. So when they have um, when they're near water, whether it's running or still, they can do social play in or around water, or they can do solitary play. And Banky observes both adults and um, immatures. Um, engaging in this, and this particular quote, if the chimpanzee is around still water, quote, they look at their reflection on the surface, sometimes stroking the water slightly, as if to observe the resulting ripples, and what I'm hoping we're going to be able to show you is a short clip um, from this field site, so you can get a sense of what they do when they're at the water's edge water play hmm, maybe not the foot and now the hand also there is no play face yeah you see i see i see i i see So I hope you have a sense um, of how at least this bonobo is responding to the opportunity to interact with water. And in your mind's eye, imagine what you would think if a child did the same. So let me just make a few conclusions and remind us that I think I've shown there is some evidence of symbolic play in great apes. The individuals who have shown these kinds of behavior Um, fall into two groups. Um, They were captive apes, um, most of whom were in ape language um, acquisition projects. And the kind of um, symbolic play that they engage in is pretense play, often with people who are emotionally important to them. And they also use American Sign Language uh, and incorporate it into pretense play. When we turn to the wild apes, um, two things emerge we can say that at least chimpanzees are using object play, pretend object play with inanimate objects to show what I'm going to describe as mock parental behavior. And lastly, perhaps um, wild apes show symbolic behavior when they're exploring water. But before I conclude, I want to show two more slides. And this sort of brings us back to the introduction. The New Yorker magazine was first published in February 1925, and this image became its iconic um, go-to. And um, he's an individual described as Eustace Tilly and he's quite a quite a fop. You know, he's got a monocle and he's watching a butterfly, and he's got a top hat. And then Barry Blit for this year's anniversary issue does this, but in fact, what he does is something so compelling. And what I think this is, is a beautiful example of how the arts and the humanities can show us an example of symbolic play in our own species. And with that, I will thank you very much and wait for questions.
1: Well, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I will talk about childhood, but I'm sure your most burning question just now is where is Loughborough, which is actually pronounced lough and here is Loughborough. It is in the very epicenter of the known universe, about 100 miles from this small village called London, nearer to Birmingham. Loughborough University is in the top 10 in the UK, should be better known around the world, it is very well known for sports, but we also have a wonderful Um, human biology uh, program there as well well what is the human ape difference if I sent you to the store to buy a child would you know what to look for and I think you would know in the human case but what about apes you're looking here at a photograph of one of the most famous female chimpanzees Fifi and two of her sons Fifi was studied by Jane Goodall for many years. Fifi is this tremendously successful mother. I'll show you her reproductive history in a moment. She provides all the care for her infants, and she doesn't really have time or resources or energy to invest in her older offspring, like Ferdinand here, or really any of her grand offspring. Fifi is like most mother chimpanzees. During her offspring infancy, she must provide milk by lactation. That takes place, that lactation takes place over four and a half to five years in chimpanzees. A little longer in orangutans, a little less in gorillas, but it's a long period of time. Humans also nurse are young. By definition, all mammals nurse their young. But humans add a few twists to this nursing. Humans can provide milk by lactation or by some canny imitation of lactation, such as a formula. And humans can even add what we call complementary feeding. Now, this painting from um, uh, the 1500s by Mar- Martin de Vos, Uh, shows a very special infant right here and uh, the sister uh, half-sisters of Mary are depicted all around her. This one is nursing an infant and this one over here is providing what we call complementary food, a, a gruel or a porridge to this infant. So human mothers already have other strategies besides breastfeeding their infants in order to care for them. Human mothers also do not nurse their infants for the four and a half to five years that chimpanzees do. Human mothers typically nurse their infants for less than three years. We can look here at a synopsis of what is called human life history by stages of feeding. Of course, before birth, feeding was done via the mother's placenta. After birth, during infancy, we have feeding by lactation or formula, and very often by the age of three months or so, some complementary foods. But by about age three, most mothers are finished breastfeeding and feed their young a more variety of complementary foods. But the mothers don't have to do this because the child now at three years of age until about seven years of age, is capable of eating watered down or processed versions of adult food. Anybody can feed a child. It does not have to be the mother. So the mother can go on and have another infant while grandmother, aunts, older brothers and sisters, sometimes even fathers have been known to care for their children. Following human childhood at about seven years of age is a period that we share with chimpanzees is called the juvenile period. Juveniles have to feed themselves. Of course, human seven-year-olds usually don't do all of their own food preparation and feeding, but seven-year-old humans can do quite a bit. They can be helpers, uh, helping in their families, helping with the care and feeding of even younger brothers and sisters. And you know, so-called street children around the world Young people who are often out on their own on the streets are not in fact children at all. Uh, our research has shown that the youngest people on the streets are in, in countries around the world are six and a half, seven years of age who are really juveniles and able to take care of themselves. Childhood shows up not only in styles of feeding but also in the way we physically grow. Here we have curves of growth for boys and girls. Boys and girls are about the same height. We're looking at height in centimeters from birth until about age 22. They're about the same height until puberty. Girls usually hit puberty a couple of years before boys do. Girls are a bit taller for a couple of years. Then boys begin their puberty. And because their puberty, their adolescence really is more intense and prolonged end up about 12, 13 centimeters, five to six inches taller on average as young men than do women. More telling than the amount of growth is the rate at which we grow. From birth till about three, infants are growing, human infants are growing very fast, but at a very steeply decelerating rate. Somewhere at about age three, that steep deceleration begins to level out And by six, seven years of age, becomes a steady six to seven centimeters per year. That is the childhood period, this change in growth rate from very steeply decelerating to more steady. And then at the end of childhood, there's a further deceleration during the juvenile stage. At puberty, growth rates accelerate again, and both a typical girl and typical boy have a very noticeable adolescent growth spurt. If you have adolescence or had adolescence at home, I'm sure you noticed it. Eventually you reach a peak, then growth decelerates again, and the mature adult develops at the end of that period of growth in height, growth of the skeleton. Good idea to wait until your own body growth is finished before you start having babies, because um, young women who have babies while they're still growing themselves often have health problems, or the mother, or for the baby, or for both. So, the full features of human life history go from infancy to childhood, juvenile, adolescent, and adult stages. This is a young Charles Darwin. And he made many observations about biological evolution, of course, but also about human and non-human animal behavior. He was a big fan of photography. And here is Charles Darwin depicted with his oldest son, William Erasmus Darwin, when little Bill here was about three years of age. Notice that William is dressed in a dress. Boys and girls were not dressed in gender specific clothing until late in the childhood period, about six, seven years of age. The Victorians and others knew that until about the juvenile stage, human infants and human children were very similar, whether they were boys or whether they were girls. It's not Charles Darwin that I wanna focus on, however, it's his wife, the mother of uh, William. Here is Emma Darwin at about age 32. And here she is in a photograph at about age 72. She died at the age of 88 in 1896. During her lifetime, Emma Darwin gave birth to 10 children, the first at age 31. We think that's relatively late in the historic past, but Emma waited until she was 31. Then she cranked them out quite quickly because she had those 10 children between her 31st and 48th birthday. Seven of those babies survived to adulthood. Here we can see Emma's life history, here's her birth, here's her death, and at age 31, she has her first, then second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth, tenth. Birth, this is not one of her births. This is the Darwin's grandson, Bernard, whose mother died died in childbirth. Darwin's adopted Bernard. That's another difference between humans and chimpanzees. The literature sometimes talks about chimpanzee adoption, but in fact, Chimpanzees do not adopt the offspring of others and care for them, feed them, especially when they're infants, the way humans uh, do. Here is Fifi again. And here is her birth and her death and her nine births. Fifi is an outlier among chimpanzees. Most chimpanzees have five or six births during their lifetime female chimpanzees, and only two survived to adulthood. In Fifi's case, out of her nine, I believe seven survived. Um, But notice how Fifi has to space out her births because while she is nursing her current infant, she cannot have another pregnancy or birth. She has to wait till that infant is essentially finished nursing. Whereas Emma Darwin could stack them and crowd her births together. Probably Emma had wet nurses to help feed her infants, but even without any help, uh, human women today can have successful births every 18 months, two years, without compromising the health of the previous born infant. So, chimpanzee mothers care for their current infant for four to five years, and on average have a new baby every 5.9, six years. Even so, only about two-thirds of their live-born babies survive to adulthood. In contrast, people have more babies, maybe not as many as Emma Darwin, but people have more babies. The world has more than 7 billion people, and chimpanzees are an endangered species. So, people can out-reproduce chimpanzees, and one reason for that is childhood, which frees the human mother from nursing and caring for her current infant. Other people can take care of that child while the mother goes on and has another baby. In the, uh, through historic times and in traditional societies, 50% to 60% of live-born infants survive to adulthood. And in modern, wealthier nations, Over 90%, in fact, closer to 98% of live-born healthy infants will survive to adulthood. And here's just one photograph from my field work in uh, Portugal with Cape Verdean and Portuguese uh, juveniles who are doing quite well. This painting encapsulates human life history, Tornado Over Kansas by John Stuart Curry. You have the infant in its mother's arms, indicating the attention and care that the mother must provide infants. Here is the child being guided to the storm cellar by her father. She may not know what's going on, but she understands that the father, someone other than the mother can care and protect her. The juvenile boy who still has the rosy cheeks of his uh, younger sister is old enough to take care of himself and save the cat. And finally, the adolescent boy who's starting to get the broad shoulders of his father with all that testosterone running through his body, even pushes up his cowlick over here. He can save the puppies of the mother dog. Then, of course, we have the reproductively mature and economically mature adults. So in the few minutes that I have remaining, uh, I'm going to talk about when did childhood evolve in the fossil record. So let's take a look at the living apes We have humans, bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. One thing that separates all those non-human apes from the human ape is they have 48 chromosomes and 24 pairs. We have 46 and 23 pairs. Does this have something to do with the evolution of childhood? The answer is we do not know. We do know that some six or more million years ago, the living chimpanzees, bonobos, and living humans shared an extinct common ancestor. We do not know exactly who that was. There are some good guesses, but I can't say for sure who it was. We don't know exactly when the different stages of human life history versus chimpanzee and non human ape life history evolved, but that is a very active question in research. One of the first Hominin fossils to be discovered is this Taung baby from the site of Taung in South Africa, Australopithecus africanus, as it's known technically today. This individual was about 2.3 million years old at the time of death, death. We know that it was an infant because it had all of its baby teeth, its milk teeth, except its first permanent molar had just erupted. We also know that as adults, these Australopithecus africanus individuals had brain sizes about 440 cubic centimeters which is about one-third the size of modern human brains so based on its teeth comparing it with modern humans and with apes we know that it was about three years old at the time of death we also know that given its dental development and what we can see from its skull we have no other parts of the body just the skull it had a chimpanzee-like pattern of growth. It may have walked on two legs, but it still grew up like a chimpanzee, meaning infancy, juvenile, and then adult stage, no childhood. There are other species Australopithecus, the older Australopithecus afarensis, so-called Lucy, as far back as almost four million years, and Australopithecus sediba, this adult female and uh, this, excuse me, uh, juvenile male and this adult female were discovered in South Africa, about 2 million years old. I worked on the sediba juvenile remains to try to determine its state of maturation at the time of death. We know that it was still growing because we can see the evidence from the skeleton that there are still lines of growth at the ends of the bones. Here's the upper arm bone, the humerus, and this is called the epiphysis, where growth is taking place. So the arm bones can get longer. And we also looked at epiphyses in the hips, the upper leg bone, in the shoulders, in the heel bone, the calcaneus. Suffice it to say that we conclude that the skeletal remains of this juvenile male Australopithecus sediba are consistent with an ape-like pattern of maturity. No childhood, it was still growing up like an ape, even though we could walk on two legs. A bit later in time, we have Homo erectus. This is an image of what is the most complete skeleton of any fossil ancestor until we get to modern humans. So we know a lot about this boy. You can see the epiphyses. We know that he was still growing. You can see that black line just there, just here, and elsewhere at the knees as well. We know he was about eight years old based on careful studies of the formation of the teeth. He was quite tall, over five feet tall. He had a cranial size of 900 cubic centimeters. I emphasize brain size. Uh, because uh, brains probably have something to do with the evolution of childhood and then later uh, human adolescence. He seems to have had childhood based on the way that leg bones are forming and the timing of the skeletal, the skeletal maturation versus the teeth, but there's no evidence that he had real adolescence. The full flower of human growth and development with infancy, childhood, juvenile, adolescent, and adult development probably evolves with the evolution of our own genus and species, Homo sapiens. The oldest evidence for that is now about 300,000 years ago from Morocco. These fossils were redated uh, just a few years ago and uh, most likely Uh, What we can really call a human pattern of growth and really a human way of life is No older than 300,000 years ago today, of course, we have the full pattern of human life We I think that uh, it was childhood that was the kickoff for what has become the human way of of living That childhood was the basis for the evolution of human culture we have today people. These are Maya people in Highlands Guatemala, where I worked for several years. Um, uh, all people have what I call biocultural reproduction, a style of taking care of having babies and taking care of babies, which is unique to our species. It depends on rules for marriage and for kinship. And here we have the grandmother, who is actually the mother-in-law of all these women. All these adult women have married one of the sons of this mother-in-law. They're having babies, here's one infant, but they also have children. And older individuals, juveniles, often take care of the children. Remember, children don't have to be nursed or fed or cared for by their mothers. Other people can do that. And we have lots of rules in our societies for who takes care of children and how they take care of children, and when they take care of children. And all that started maybe in Homo erectus times. All the daughters-in-law here work cooperatively to take care of themselves, their own infants, and children, and juveniles, and each other. That is a unique way of, of, of living found only in the human species. Again, chimpanzees don't take care of each other's infants or juveniles. People, however, well, we have to take care of each other. There's no other way to do it. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.